We have a very special uh, musical presentation that's going to be available via video and released uh, this evening, Lord willing, at 6 o'clock. Uh, it'll be available on social media, but we're also uh, going to be sending out the link uh, on the web uh, site where you can find it uh, and uh, through email as well. It's about 35 minutes, and it's really a progression of uh, the Christmas purpose and meaning, and our worship ministry worked hard on it, and it's very high quality, and I think it'll be a big blessing to you, and I hope that you'll be on the lookout for that uh, as uh, it comes out later today, and then it'll be available for you to watch at your convenience from there. Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Our passage of scripture today is going to be verse 35 through verse 48 in a message entitled, Get Ready for the Return of Jesus. We know that 2020 has been a year of disasters uh, ranging from multiple hurricanes and uh, fires and the COVID-19 situation and more. A lot of time and effort and money goes into disaster preparedness. Some of you maybe by way of your vocation are familiar with that. And yet a recent survey showed that 75% of Americans say that they do not feel adequately prepared for natural or man-made disasters. It was during the Korean War that uh, the United States Army designated what they referred to as alternative defensive positions, meaning that if the units began to be overrun or it looked like they were about to be in trouble, that they were to retreat. Uh, when they retreated, they were to do what they called uh, bugging out in order to get to a place where they could better defend themselves. So the idea of a bug out bag or a go bag uh, began to be more popularized during that time. And then it's been adopted by military institutions, certainly around the world. But the idea basically is that if the situation changes quickly, you have everything in one place with the materials and the supplies that you need in order to be able to survive uh, for a short amount of time. And that idea of a go bag has been talked about more for civilians as well uh, with having that lightweight bag with some food and water and uh, maybe your appropriate uh, identification documents and whatever else you think might be essential. Uh, so that in a moment's time, you can go and have what you need. The idea is to get ready for whatever may come. So as we think about this Advent season that we're in, Advent is about uh, getting ready. It's about an arrival or an appearing, a coming into place. We speak of the first Advent of Jesus when he was born and came into the world at Bethlehem. And then we speak of the second advent of Jesus in relation to his return. The scripture passage before us today is going to provide some instructions for us on how to get ready for the return of Jesus. Our statement of faith has something to say about that as well. And I'm going to read that and then we'll look at the scripture passage together. But the Baptist faith and message in reference to last things says, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell 
the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous and their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. Let's hear the words of Jesus beginning in Luke chapter 12 and verse 35. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what the hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable to only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Verse 44, Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delayed, uh, delaying his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. Verse 48. But he who did not know, yet committed the things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. How can we get ready for the return of Jesus? First of all, if you're going to get ready for the return of Jesus, you need to anticipate the return of Jesus. You need to live with a sense of holy anticipation of what is to come. Now, Jesus uses several word pictures here to emphasize the same point. Each of these word pictures is used to emphasize the importance of getting ready for his return. The first word picture is to let your waist be girded or be dressed in readiness. Now, in those days, most people wore long robes, long flowing robes, and they were a hindrance if you needed to move quickly or to move about freely. If a person needed to run or even if they needed to work and to be able to move around well, what they would do is they would take that long robe and they would tuck it into a sash around their waist so that it would not hinder their movements. So what this indicates is a perpetual state of readiness. The second word picture is to keep your lamps burning or to keep your lamps alight. This comes from a time, obviously, when there was no electricity, there was no city lights, there were no night lights, 
uh, to show you the way or to help you find your way. So if you were expecting a late arrival at your home, you would leave one of those oil lamps burning to prepare for the person who was coming so that when that knock came at the door, you would be ready to receive the person who had arrived. The third word picture is of servants who were awaiting their master's return from a wedding feast. Now, a wedding feast wouldn't have just been a, an afternoon reception like we might experience today. It would be a celebration that could go on for days, even as long as a week. And the idea is that the master has been at this wedding feast, and you don't know when he's going to return. But those who are serving need to be ready to receive him when he comes back, and he would come back when you were least expecting him. The fourth word picture is that of someone who is looking or anticipating watching the house in, in case a thief came to break in. And you want to be ready for that so that you could prevent uh, harm be, being done uh, to your home. Now, when we think about these uh, illustrations that Jesus gives, he's talking about an anticipation, but yet we're anticipating a time that we do not yet know when it's going to take place. And people who are not expecting the return of the Lord uh, might end up mocking the idea or making fun of it. After all, it's been uh, 2,000 years or so since these words uh, were spoken. Certainly, uh, every generation of the church has thought that their generation was going to be the generation. So what are we to make of that? Well, Peter makes it clear in 2 Peter chapter 3 that in part, our perspective on time and God's perspective on time are not the same thing. Think about it this way. Your life has a beginning and it has an end, your birth and your death. And if Jesus tarries his coming, we're going to experience both of those. So in that, it's a short window of time. Even if we live 100 years, the Bible says that life is but a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. But God, on the other hand, is outside of time. He's the creator of time. He works within time. He carries out his kingdom plan within the boundaries of that time. But God is outside of time because he is eternal. And Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, uh, some might say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep or died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So some people might look around and they say, hey, the seasons are continuing to come and go. Time is rolling on in creation as we know it. And where is Jesus? He's not yet come back. But then Peter says this in verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So God being eternal, what seems like a long time to us, might in reality only be a short time to God in his economy of time. And one of the primary reasons that God has delayed the return of Jesus and the judgment that comes along with it is because God is a patient God. He is building his family. He's drawing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is advancing his kingdom. And there are people who are coming to repentance and faith in Jesus. So Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But he is long-suffering or patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. What manner of persons ought we to be? In holy conduct and godliness. We look for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will dwell. We expect the return of Jesus because of all that comes along with it. I love the way Arnold Olson put it. He wrote, ever since the first days of the Christian church, the church has been looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. They might have disagreed as to its timing and to the events on the eschatological calendar. They may have differed as to a pre-tribulation or a post-tribulation rapture, the pre or the post or the non-millennial coming. Uh, They may have been divided uh, on some of the particulars of it. However, all are agreed that the final solution to the problems of this world is in the hands of the King of Kings who will someday make the kingdoms of this world his very own. You see, to live with a sense of expectation is to get ready and to be sure that we're looking to Jesus as our Savior, waiting with that sense of joyful anticipation. And then second, if you're going to get ready, you need to live as servants of Jesus. There's a progression here in this passage. And the progression is the anticipation that leads to the type of lives that we're leading, that leads to the type of accountability that we're going to experience based on how we've lived with what God has entrusted to us. Now, Peter wanted to know if the Lord was only speaking to them or was speaking to all people. I appreciate the inquiry of Peter and certainly the uh, bluntness that at times he asked questions with because he's like, Lord, you talking only to us or are you talking to everybody? Who who does this apply to? And Jesus makes reference here uh, to what amounts to categories of servants. Each of these categories of servants will receive a reward or a punishment based on how they've responded to the grace of God and what he's entrusted to them. Interestingly, there's only one good servant that is referenced. The others are presented in a negative light. Now, we think about biblical stewardship, which I think is what's in view here. Um, Biblical stewardship begins with the understanding that God is the owner of everything. And he's entrusted to us certain things that have come from his good hand, and we're to use those things for his glory. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9 that we are God's fellow workers. So when I say stewardship, or we think about biblical stewardship as Christians, we're basically thinking about how are we managing what God has given to us to manage. And here's the beauty of it. The things that God entrusts to us to manage are from his hand, by his grace, and according to his mercy. So they're they're gifts. And then the strength to manage those things, the strength or the ability to be faithful stewards, also comes by the power of God's Spirit working in us. So it's not as though God gives us all these things and then says, do the best you can with them. Try harder and do better. That's not what he says. But rather, he gives us these things and then he empowers us to use them. Uh, I think uh, the way that David Green put it in his book, Giving It All Away, uh, illustrates the contrast between how some people live and how they ought to live. 
Uh, he said some people act like life is an oversized game of Monopoly, where the way to win is to accumulate as many properties as you can, either by purchasing them outright or cleverly trading for them. Then you just keep on adding houses and hotels and extracting rent from others until you eventually drive them away. And then you sit back and you rub your hands together and you count your stacks of cash. He said life is more like Uno or Crazy Eights, where the point is to run out of cards first. You want to deploy every card you have, knowing that each card left in your hand at the end counts against you. And he says don't get stuck uh, at the time of your funeral with leftover cards. That's a little bit of an extreme, but you get the point. There's certainly nothing wrong with uh, planning for and managing what we have and taking care of our families and planning for the future. All those things are incredibly important. But he's simply making the point that if you're living for self, and that's your sole goal in life, is just to get stuff for yourself and just build it up and accumulate it versus investing it and being a good steward, then you have missed the point. Now, Jesus says here specifically that the good steward would be rewarded because he knew that the Lord was coming and had lived as a faithful servant. In fact, three times in verse 37 and 38, and then again in verse 43, Jesus calls the faithful servant blessed. But there's a step further here that we do not want to miss. He makes a remarkable statement. And he says that the Lord himself will wait on the faithful servant and serve the faithful servant. Can you imagine the blessing? He, he's calling the good steward blessed, but he's saying even the Lord is going to wait on such a servant. Now, Jesus literally demonstrated how to serve others. As he was preparing for the cross, he washed the feet of his disciples. He showed us what true humility and servanthood is all about. He ultimately laid down his life on the cross, giving of himself for us. That's the ultimate act of servanthood. The one who was sinless became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then as faithful stewards of what he's entrusted to us, we'll be blessed with the reward. Now, the point's further demonstrated in Luke chapter 19 and verse 17, where the scripture says, Speaking of the one to whom the Lord had given money, who had gained more by trading and using it well, he said to him, well done, good and faithful servant, because you were faithful in a very little, you have authority over 10 cities. Now, I don't know exactly what our eternal charge is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth, but I don't think it's going to be the ethereal existence that we see on the movies, this, the idea of floating around on a cloud and all that goes along with that. It's going to be a lot more like the original design in Eden before sin entered in and the fall took place. There's going to be order in the new heavens and the new earth. Apparently, there are going, there's going to be what God has designed for eternity, and he's going to give us responsibility over certain things. And as we anticipate that, we are looking for and longing for the appearing of the Lord. Now, in this idea of reward, you remember what? The Apostle Paul said in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, he said, there is a crown of righteousness that is laid up for those who love his appearing, who long for his appearing. There are five specific crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament that will be given as rewards. One of those is for all who love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and long for and await his coming. So while we don't know the exact nature of the increased eternal authority or responsibility we have, we, uh, we do know that we can be sure the assignments will be joyful and they will all be pointed toward one thing. And that is bringing honor and glory to God forever and forever. So every servant of the Lord who's been faithful in temporary earthly responsibilities will at his return be given permanent responsibilities in serving God. Then if you want to get ready, thirdly, you need to know that unfaithful servants will also be accountable to Jesus. This is where the turn becomes a little bit harder to really understand from a human perspective. But the stark nature of the words of Jesus show us how critically important it is that we get ready and that we're prepared for what's to come. Because in contrast to the faithful servant, the next category of servants wrongly thought they had plenty of time before the master returned. They began to live for themselves. Their living for themselves was demonstrated by the fact that they even abused the other servants who were under their charge. They took advantage of all these things for their own pleasure without regard for the Lord's purposes. They're not just lazy, but they are terribly unfaithful, mistreating others, and then even giving themselves to excessive partaking of the pleasures of the world and eating and drinking and giving themselves to intoxication. And the Lord warns that there is going to be a day of accounting coming. Remember, we've already learned in Luke's gospel that when the Lord comes, everything's going to be uncovered. Everything's going to be out in the open. There's going to be nothing that will be hidden in his sight. So we need to be sure that we're not living in a state of hypocrisy, but we're living in a state of sincerity before the Lord. And we need to make sure that our profession and the way that we are living our lives matches up and goes together because eventually everything will be put right and the truth will be made known to all. And the servant who knows the Lord's will and does not get ready for it is going to suffer the judgment of God. Now, I do think it's important to note here that impatience and cynicism demonstrated in unfaithfulness ultimately reveals a lack of salvation. Jesus makes this very point here, that in the end, the servant is going to meet a terrible day of accountability because the Lord pronounces him to be an unbeliever. He's going to take part with the unbelievers. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 5 and 6. He said, For this you know that no fornicator or unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of the things, uh, these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We forget how serious the words of Jesus are in the scripture about judgment. Yes, Jesus is love. Yes, Jesus is grace. But Jesus is also holiness. And this idea of stewardship really helps us understand the whole issue of idolatry. And a lot of us have a hard time thinking about idolatry because we're not uh, accustomed to making graven images and bowing down and, and worshiping them, certainly. But idolatry is to look to any created thing other than God for your peace and your satisfaction, and your purpose in life. 
It's looking at things that are temporary to try to gain what can only be gained eternally. And that those things are only found in God. And then we have the final group of servants who evidently didn't even know the master's will. And Jesus says they'll be judged less severely, but make no mistake about it, they will be judged nonetheless. You know, they say uh, ignorance of the law is no excuse. The same thing applies here. Ignorance of truth is no excuse for disobedience to God. Let's come back now before I close to verse 48. Look at the second part of verse 48. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Understand, God has given each of us a measure of treasure. Meaning that you have your life, you have the experiences that God's given you in life, you have the educational opportunities that God has blessed you with. You have the natural abilities that he's given you, whatever those are. And then you have spiritual gifts that are given to you according to the grace of God by the Spirit. God wants you to collectively use all of those things for his glory. And the beauty of this is you'll not be accountable for how I've been gifted and the blessings that I've had in life. I'll not be accountable for how you've been gifted and the blessings you've been given in this life. Each of us will be accountable individually for how we've used what God has given us to further his kingdom and to proclaim his glory. So what I'm saying to you is that God created you and saved you and gifted you for a reason. And wouldn't it be a shame, it'd be an absolute tragedy to go through this life knowing that God made you and God blessed you, and God empowered you, and yet you didn't use it to the fullest for the purpose in which he intended it. You see, before the first advent of Jesus, there was a sense of holy anticipation. After all, there's a beautiful reality of waiting for a baby's birth. The mother finds out that she's expecting, and there's a great deal of preparation that goes along with it. And in the same way, we prepare our hearts and our homes uh, for the arrival of a new baby and the unlimited possibilities of what is to come, we prepare our hearts and our homes for the reality of what is yet to come in Jesus. You see, it is obvious that the birth pangs on the earth continue to increase with intensity. But are we ready? What do we ought to do? What should we do in the meantime? What ought we to do in the meantime? as we get ready and prepare. Well, we need, we got to learn to wait and have a sense of uh, perseverance. That's hard, but it, it's necessary. In the meantime, we need to work. We need to be doing everything we can uh, to extend God's kingdom and to be a part of the upbuilding of his church. And then uh, we need to watch and we need to do it with uh, a holy anticipation. So I ask you in closing, are you ready to meet Jesus? He will return. Are you ready to meet him? For the believer, that means that you're desiring to live a life of purpose and faithfulness 
with how he's blessed you. Listen, this is not, this is not a life of perfection. This is a life of growth. Because it's by God's grace. When we fall, we, we get up again. God's patient. He's merciful with us. We're growing along the way. We're learning lessons. We're using what the Lord has blessed us with. And we're looking forward to being in his presence eternally. So for the believer, that means living a life of faithful stewardship. But for the unbeliever, that means meeting Jesus and receiving the gift of salvation so that your life can be used for the purposes of God. And it's very simple how we come to know Jesus Christ and become his disciple. We understand that God is holy and we're sinners. And that if God had not intervened, we would be hopeless and helpless. We would be on our way to a sinner's hell. But God sent his one and only son to live and to die and to now live again so that we would be forgiven and have everlasting life. And the Bible calls on us to turn from our sins and turn to the Savior. And when we do, God saves us. He declares us righteous in Jesus Christ, doing what we cannot do on our own. It is all of grace. And when we come to him in faith and God declares us righteous, he sets us on that path of service until someday either he returns or if that's a little while in the future, we go to be with him. So don't wait. Don't think I got plenty of time. Don't think uh, I'm just going to wait until I do these other things. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in him and don't delay. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, thank you for these words of Jesus. The reminder of the second advent, the anticipation that we are to have of his return. And we proclaim as a church that we believe this. We don't fully grasp all that it means. We know that this is supernatural. It's miraculous. It's beyond even what our meager human words can affirm and proclaim. But we desire to proclaim and affirm what your word does. And we thank you that Jesus has shown us the reality uh, of his return. So I pray for all my brothers and sisters in Christ that you would find us faithful, use us in the way that you see fit, and we yield up our lives to you as an offering. Father, we pray for those who may be listening to this message now or might listen to it later on that are not yet followers of Jesus, that they'd not delay, they'd not wait, but, but they would receive forgiveness by looking to you in faith trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for salvation, knowing that it is all of grace, and being grateful for your work in our lives and receiving you by faith. So we pray to that end, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.